Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode, we will discuss the 2022 European Lung Cancer Congress. ELCC 22 was held as a virtual meeting this year, in large part due to the conflict in Ukraine, as the meeting venue in Prague was being utilized as an important refugee assistance center. Certainly, our thoughts are with all those affected by the conflict, but the switch to a virtual meeting here went very smoothly, despite the relatively short notice, in large part due to the experience of the organizers, IASLC and ESMO, and all of those on the organizing committee. To review the highlights of the meeting, I'm joined by the two scientific co-chairs, Dr. Nicolas Girard and Dr. Liza Hendricks. Dr. Nicolas Girard is a pulmonologist specializing in thoracic oncology. He is a professor of respiratory medicine at the Versailles University and head of the Curie Montserrat Thorax Institute in Paris. He's also the president-elect of the International Thymic Malignancy Interest Group. Nicolas, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. And we have Dr. Liza Hendricks, who is an assistant professor at the Maastricht University in the Netherlands. She is also a pulmonologist specializing in thoracic oncology. She's the program leader of the Innovative Cancer Diagnostics Therapy Group at Grove School of Oncology and Developmental Biology and is a member of the Young Academy of the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Science. She is the EORTC Lung Cancer Group Chair for Metastatic Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer Systemic Therapy. Liza, thank you for joining us. Hello, and also thank you for inviting me. Now, let's just take a minute to talk about the logistics of this meeting. Due to the pandemic, our scientific meetings have been virtual for basically the past two years. For a lot of us, ELCC 22 was set to be our first in-person meeting, looking forward to seeing old colleagues. But then the events in Ukraine abruptly changed our priorities and our plans. Liza, when did you realize that this meeting was going to be virtual? And was there already a contingency plan in place? This was around two to three weeks before the conference when the decision was made that the conference center would become a refugee center. And I think there were contingency plans in place for COVID-related problems. So therefore, the staff was very quick to adjust everything. And I think they really did an incredible job in a very short time. And I'm very happy all speakers were flexible and adapted to these changes. It was quite impressive. It went very smoothly, Mm. I think. You know, Nicola, we're all very comfortable with virtual meetings now. We're so used to it. The platform this year was very user-friendly. Now, last year's ESMO meeting was a hybrid meeting with most of us participating virtually, but a small group, including yourself, there in person in Paris. Meetings like ASCO 22, World Conference on Lung Cancer 22 are slated to be in person. Sort of having a lot of experience with these different meetings, Nicola, can you tell us what the in-person component adds to the meeting? And what are the challenges when we have to go completely virtual? Well, the, the key point is interaction, interaction between speakers, interaction with the session chairs, interaction with everyone, which is, to me, the most important thing when I come to a meeting. Through the virtual platform, we were able to maintain some of those discussions during the session, after the session, but ultimately, we miss the discussion in the lobbies, in the Congress hall. And I believe this is very important, and this is what we need. And hopefully, ASCO 2022, WCLC 2022 will be in-person meeting. 
ELCC is very unique because the signature of this Congress is multidisciplinarity, as we experience in the clinic every day. So to me, it's very important to have in-person interactions as well. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the conveyance of information is something that can be done very easily virtually, but it's that sort of spontaneous discussion, discussing new trial designs and coming to the, to the root of certain problems. I think that that conversation part has been missing, but hopefully we'll have more in-person opportunities in the near future. Why don't we talk about some of the highlights from ELCC 22? There are a lot of important studies and I'd love to put those in the right context. Let's start with EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. You know, we know that our current preferred treatment for advanced EGFR mutant lung cancers, the third generation EGFR kinase inhibitor, osimertinib. Now at this meeting, we saw results with two newer EGFR kinase inhibitors, firminertinib, or AST2818, and oritinib, or SH1028. Liza, can you tell us a little bit about these two EGFR inhibitors? Yes, of course. First, firminertinib, this irreversible third-generation EGFR TKI was evaluated first as gefitinib in the randomized double-blind phase 3 furlong study, and this study had as a primary endpoint PFS. Almost 360 patients were enrolled, and the study was very positive, with an almost 21-month PFS for formanertinib versus around 11 months for gefitinib, and this translated in a hazard ratio of 0.44, and it was also consistent across different subgroups. And the percentage of grade 3 or higher treatment-related adverse events was slightly lower in the formanertinib arm, with a very low number of patients needing a dose reduction or interruption. And I think toxicity was as expected for an EGFR TKI with mainly diarrhea, rash, and liver test abnormalities. And for me, the study is quite similar to the FLORA trial, with as difference that furlong was performed entirely in China, but also the patient characteristics of included patients were largely similar, although the percentage of patients with baseline brain metastasis was higher, with around 35% in furlong and around 20% in FLORA. And I think this difference can be attributed to the fact that a furlong baseline and follow-up brain imaging was mandated, either with MRI or CT, while in FLORA, this was not. The other study was with oritinib. This is another third-generation EGFR TKI. And what, this was evaluated in a single-arm phase 2 trial, enrolling patients with advanced EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer and the T790M mutation. In this study, primary endpoint was objective response rate, and over 200 patients were enrolled. And I think baseline characteristics were as expected for this patient population. Again, around one-third of the patients had brain metastasis, and a quarter had previously received chemotherapy. And again, for many of the trials that will be discussed in this podcast, the trial enrolled only in China. The response rate was 60% with a disease control rate over 90% and a median progression-free survival just over one year. Toxicity was a little bit higher. 14% of patients had treatment-related grade 3 or higher toxicity, but less than 2% needed a dose reduction or a dose discontinuation, but there were four toxic deaths. And if you look at the most common grade 3 or higher toxicities, these were increased CPK, diarrhea, and also hematological toxicities. And I think if you compare this again with osimertinib in a T790M mutated non-small cell lung cancer patient population, the data is largely similar. So that's an important point there. These are new EGFR inhibitors, and hopefully we'll increase access to these agents. But we wouldn't really consider these to be effective post-osimertinib. These are more lateral to osimertinib, right, Liza? Yeah. 
So these are yep. additional, mm-hmm. yeah, additional yep. third-generation EGFR yep. inhibitors. Excellent. You know, along the same theme, we also saw data from other checkpoint inhibitors, PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors, like camrelizumab and scintillamab. Now, these studies explored the approach of chemoimmunotherapy compared to chemotherapy alone, sort of an old standard at this point in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Nicola, can you summarize some of those data? Sure. So we have updated data from those two trials, the CAMEL-SQUAMUS phase 3 trial and the Orient 11, again, phase 3 trial. CAMEL-SQUAMUS was uh, conducted in patients with metastatic squamous cell carcinomas with uh, an experimental arm of carboplatin paclitaxel with camerelizumab versus placebo, and the crossover was allowed in this uh, study. The results presenting during ELCC were about overall survival that favored camerelizumab with a median of 27.4 months versus 15.5 months in the control arm. The hazard ratio was 0.57, and the two-year overall survival rate was 54% versus 35% with chemotherapy alone. There were no new safety signals in this report of the study. The Orient 11 trial was connected in non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancers, with a combination of platin pemetrexed with centilimab versus placebo. And again, in this study, the overall survival favors centilimab with a median of 24.2 months versus 16.8 months with chemotherapy alone. This is a hazard ratio of 0.65. The median, the two-year overall survival rate was 50% versus 32%. So these data confirm the benefit of combining chemotherapy with anti-PD-1, anti-PD-L1 immune checkpoint inhibitors in the first-line treatment of metastatic non-small cell lung cancers. So reinforcing a strategy that I think we're all fairly comfortable with, but good to see more positive data. And let's turn our attention to another driver subset, you know, MET exon 14 skip mutations. We know these are actionable drivers. We have two FDA-approved agents available, capmatinib and tapotinib. Dr. Shun Lu presented data at ELCC 22 on savalitinib. Now, that's another MET inhibitor. Liza, can you review those data in the context of our available drugs? Yeah, so this was, again, a completely Chinese study, a single-arm phase 2 study with savulitinib dose based on weight. So 600 milligram if the weight was 50 kilogram or higher, or 400 milligram if the weight was below 50 kilogram. And only patients with advanced met exon 14 skipping positive non-small cell lung cancer were enrolled. Of note, as we know that met exon 14 skipping can also occur in sarcomatoid lung cancer, these patients were also allowed. The patients needed to be MET-TKI naive, and primary endpoint was objective response rate. The objective response rate was already reported last year in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine and was 49%, so what you expect, I think, for a MET-TKI. And as this year's ELCC, the final overall survival and subgroup analysis were reported. In this study, 70 patients were enrolled, and 25 had sarcomatoid lung cancer, and yeah, also as expected, this was an older patient population with a median age of 69 years and almost a quarter of patients aged above 75 or higher. 40% of the patients were treatment naive and 21% had baseline brain meds. The median progression-free survival was almost seven months and 
interestingly, was similar for patients with and without baseline brain metastasis. But with five and a half months, was a little bit lower for patients with sarcomatoid lung cancer. Median overall survival was 12 and a half months for the total patient population and 10.6 months for sarcomatoid compared with 17.3 months for other histologies. And again, I think the most common treatment emergent events, grade three or higher, were edema and liver test abnormalities. Yeah, so what you would expect for a MET-TKI. Yeah, sort of a class effect yeah. there. I mean, let's just take a second here. We have a lot of very good data here, You know, good positive trials, good outcomes. But while the drugs are new, while the names might be unfamiliar, the strategies are not, right? We've talked about a third generation EGFR-TKI, and that's superior to a first generation. It's just instead of osimertinib, it's firminertinib. We see a third gen EGFR-TKI can overcome T790M mediated resistance. Here, instead of osimertinib in aura, it's oritinib. And we learned that adding a PD-1 inhibitor to chemotherapy improves outcomes, but instead of pembrolizumab or atezolizumab, it's camrolizumab and scintillimab. Nicholas, what do these studies add to our knowledge base, and how do these advance the field? Well, I have to say that it's always good to support our current evidence from one or two trials with other results, with drugs of the same class, what strengthens the level of recommendation and increase the opportunity to treat patients worldwide with those strategies. That said, one may consider there is a need to move forward to investigate with the landmark agents, but as well as with the newest agents, some of the key clinical questions that we have for the global management of the patients. And I have to say that the, the questions are pretty much the same in oncogene addicted and non-oncogene addicted tumors. These are the issues of resistance, resistance to surgeon TKIs resistant to immune checkpoint uh, inhibitors. It's obviously a matter of access to new drugs, but I believe that many questions, academic studies could be launched to study biomarkers, biological residual disease, assessment of treatment beyond progression, or the understanding of the molecular mechanism of resistance. So I believe having more agents should help to address some of those questions. It will increase the global access to those therapies everywhere in the world. It's an opportunity to build real-world evidence data, uh, to have some translational research to be launched to answer those questions. Yeah, I think those are excellent points, Nicola. And I'll also point out to our listeners that while the standard of chemotherapy alone is not one that we certainly support today, many of these studies that are reading out now were started quite a while ago. We're seeing the results uh, sort of a few years later. Liz, anything to add here? What's the value of these types of studies? I think it's, I fully agree with Nicola. And I think these drugs yeah, also provide opportunities for patients that cannot access the other existing drugs. So I hope that will be an opportunity for them. It could be that toxicities are a little bit different uh, so that you can switch if a patient has too many toxicities for one TKI to another TKI. I don't think that will be the case for immunotherapy. Maybe some more data about CNS penetration. Data is still quite preliminary, but I think that's, yeah, these are the most important points. Yes. And I hope that, you know, as more active drugs enter the market, hopefully we'll see that impact the price and perhaps cost will come down and, and further increase access. We also heard about a new ROS1 inhibitor uh, this year at ELCC22, TQ-B3101. Liza, can you tell us a little bit about this molecule? 
Yeah, so again, Chinese study, and this drug fortunately also has a name now, unicritinib. And besides ROS1, it also targets ALK and MET. It was evaluated in a single um, phase two study, and in this case, enrolling only patients with advanced ROS1 positive non small cell lung cancer. They had to be ROS1 TKI naive, but up to two lines of chemotherapy were allowed. In this study, one in 11 patients were allowed. These patients were quite young, median age of 52. As expected, the majority were never smokers. Again, around one third had based on brain meds. And median follow-up was just over one year, and response rate was an impressive 78%, with a disease control rate of 87%, and a median progression-free survival of 15.6 months. Median overall survival was not reached, but two-year survival rate was encouraging with 88%. Quite high percentage of patients had grade 3 or higher treatment-related adverse events, 45%, which were mainly lab-based, so neutropenia and liver test abnormalities. But 16% of the patients discontinued the drug due to treatment-related adverse events. And I think of interest, a quarter of the patients developed mainly low-grade ocular toxicity, so, such as visual impairment. So I think interesting drug, but yeah, more data needed at the moment. Yeah, impressive response rates, but yeah, we'd like to see these mature a bit. Let's shift our focus to earlier stage lung cancer. I think one of the more exciting developments in thoracic oncology has been perioperative systemic therapy. Now, at ELCC 22, we saw Dr. Enriquette Philippe present some subset analyses from Empower 010. Now, that was a study of adjuvant atezolizumab in resected non-small cell lung cancer. Nicola, could you summarize that update for us? Sure. In patients with resected PDL1 high non-small cell lung cancer, adjuvant atezolizumab significantly improves disease-free survival. In this update presented at the meeting, we learned a little bit more about the patterns of relapse. And with best supportive care, relapse was distant in 42% of the time. With adjuvant atezolizumab, distant only relapse was 25%. So fewer patients had distant relapse. And we also saw CNS only relapse was less common with atezolizumab, 4% versus 14%. So this clearly indicate that the effect of immune checkpoint inhibitors after complete resection of an early stage tumor works everywhere. It's not only to decrease the risk of lung or mediastinal relapses, the effect of immune checkpoint inhibitors is a systemic effect. Yeah, I agree. This is a really important upgrade in our management of early stage lung cancer. Hopefully going to lead to more cures. And it's exciting to see these data mature during our careers. You know, immunotherapy is very exciting in, in the adjuvant, in the neoadjuvant space as well, with impressive data here for atezolizumab and power 10 and neoadjuvant nivolumab plus chemotherapy and checkmate 816, which I know you're involved in as well. But we also think that targeted therapy might play a role here. We have data for adjuvant osimertinib in resected Egypt from mutant lung cancer with Adora. At ELCC, we saw a little bit of data for neoadjuvant osimertinib as well. Eliza, can you talk us through that study? Yeah, so the NEO study was an update, a single arm phase two study, evaluating neoadjuvant osimertinib in resectable stage two to three EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. And osimertinib 80 milligrams, so standard dose, was given for six weeks and then followed by resection. Primary endpoint, again, objective response rate, 38 patients were enrolled. Around half of these patients had stage 3A. For these 38 patients, the response rate was 71%, 
with 100% disease control rate. 32 patients proceeded to surgery, and 94% of these patients had an R0 resection. 28 were pathologically evaluable, and major pathological response was 11%, including one pathological complete response. So interesting, but again, early data. Now, let's talk about this sort of in the context of our own clinics. You know, Lisa, when neoadjuvant or adjuvant immunotherapy is available for resectable or resected lung cancer, do you think that approach, the immunotherapy approach, is something we should explore in driver-positive lung cancer? So let's say you have someone who's resectable lung cancer, and we think that we're going to pursue an immunotherapy approach either before or after surgery. If an EGFR mutation or if an ALK fusion are present, would you still consider an immunotherapy-based approach? I think it's, it's a good question. And for the moment, I wouldn't advise this. I think for the mutations or fusions that are associated with non-smoking, like EGFR and ALK, yeah, in Empower 10, these patients did not have a benefit, although it seems that in PEARLS, the data is conflicting. But I think for PEARLS, we'll need more follow-up data. And in daily practice, I see quite some toxicity of TKI after adjuvant immunotherapy. And in the Netherlands, this is after adjuvant durvalumab for stage 3 non-small cell, as neoadjuvant or adjuvant immunotherapy is not approved. So I think for me, I would favor either adjuvant osimertinib or a clinical trial, but I wouldn't favor immunotherapy in EGFR-mutated or ALK-positive patients in this disease setting. Yeah, it's a very challenging situation because mm. there's not a lot of direct head-to-head data. What about you, Nicola? Do you think we need to check for actionable drivers before we think of a neoadjuvant or adjuvant immunotherapy approach? And if we found a driver, would that influence the strategy you chose? Yes. My recommendation is actually to have all those patients eligible for surgery to have a genotyping of the tumor, at least for EGFR mutations and ALK rearrangements. This is because we already have ADORA in the adjuvant setting for EGFR mutant resected non-small cell lung cancer, and I believe it's important to identify those patients even before surgery. And this is also because for neoadjuvant immunotherapy from the randomized study Checkmate 816 that will be presented at the next AACR meeting, we had to exclude patients with known actionable alterations in the EGFR or ALK genes. So to me, we actually applying to early stage disease, the same stratification that we apply for patients with metastatic disease. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, there's no reason to think that. I think the paradigm would be different in that setting. So I fully agree with that. Looking at the clock here, I know we're running out of time, but Before we go, I wonder if we could just hear a little bit about the two of you and your career paths and and what led you to us here. You know, Nicola, let's start with you. You trained as a pulmonologist with your initial medical studies in Lyon. And after your fellowships, you worked with Dr. William Powell at Memorial Sloan Kettering before returning to France. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what made you decide to focus on thoracic cancers? Well, that's a a very interesting question. And I believe we do not have enough time to to discuss that. But I have to say that I started my residency at the time precision medicine was emerging in the field with the discovery of EGFR mutations. That was a clear revolution for the patients. And then I've been very fortunate, I have to say, because I met many colleagues. I had multiple opportunities to work in many aspects of, of lung cancer in several places. Now at Institute Curie with, with great people in the clinic and, and in the lab. And I clearly recommend young investigators to have some this kind of path within their early career. 
I also to say that the driver to me is a relationship with patients. It's always remind us what we achieved, but also what still remains to be done. And I have to thank ESMO and ISLC because these groups have been so much supportive in my early career. And I really consider being part of ESMO, ISLC is a wonderful experience. Yeah, it really is a warm community. Thank you for that, Nicola. Lizzie, you also trained as a pulmonologist, and we know that you're extremely active in our professional societies, on guideline committees, and as an investigator. But you also have a specific focus on the development of brain metastases. And I know your doctorate work was focused on this topic. Can you tell us what sparked that interest, and you know, how did you choose thoracic oncology as a focus? I think for me, it's largely the same as for, for Nicola. I think that yeah, I like biology, also all the unanswered questions in thoracic oncology, and I like to learn new things and to challenge myself. And I think thoracic oncology is for now, I think, a great area for research. For the patient population, I, yeah, I'm at ease discussing difficult topics. I really try to see patient behind the disease, not consider them a number, but really try to focus on the treatment goals. And for me, brain metastasis got my interest because they're often yeah, diagnosed completely out of the blue. While the other disease is still under control, you cannot predict which patient will or will not develop brain metastasis. And they often decrease quality of life. And as patients with brain metastasis are often excluded from clinical trials, I think all efforts should be made to improve the available therapies also for the subgroup of patients. So therefore, my research focus. Important point. And I'll just say for everyone out there that the field clearly is better because the two of you are involved. So thank you for all of your contribution. Thank you for putting together a wonderful scientific Congress here. We are out of time for this episode, but Liza, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for inviting me. And Nicola, thank you as well for all of your insights today. Thank you for the great discussion today. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. I hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. You can engage on Twitter at IASLC or at our website, IASLC.org. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.IASLC.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 